This passage is taken from John 3, verses 1 to 17. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a seat. Awesome. Hey, how are you all doing this afternoon, friends? So good. I'm loving this chit-chat, third row back. I know your name, and I'm blessed. Actually, last week, I was chatting to the team, the staff team on Monday, and I was saying, it felt like God gave us, like, the gift of clapping in church last week. Did anyone, did anyone like, enjoy that clapping last week as we were in? Yeah, come on. There it is. That's, I actually paid Brent to give me an Exhibit A, so that's what it sounded like that last week. That's what it'll sound like going forward. But um, I just want to say, I'm the pastor here at New Life Brisbane. My name's Alex. Please, come and say hi if you've not met me. I would love to meet you. And as Dylan said, hear your story. Uh, because every story is important to God, and actually intersecting with one another and sharing our stories. It gives witness to what God's done in our lives, but to it allows us to feel known. There's nowhere to be known and make yourself known than to share your story, and so we just invite you to do that. A couple quick announcements from me before we jump into the text this afternoon. Um, While I'm preaching, there will be some high school students, boarders from Somerville House, that'll probably make their way somewhere into this auditorium. So that's more just a flag. Um, We've got some students joining us this afternoon. And if you call New Life Home and you see some students wearing Somerville House uniforms, I would just say make them feel so welcome as we gather here this afternoon. They're just joining us. Um, They go sort of do these programs as a a boarding house school and um, they... 
will be with us this afternoon. So it's our privilege to host them and make them feel welcome in what is our home as a church family. So please do that. Secondly, um, after, the ser- after my sermon, at some point we'll have communion. And I'm saying that now because I'll probably forget to say it at the end. But what does that mean if you're a parent? It means if you've got kids up in kids' life on level one, please, as I finish preaching, in the song that leads us into response, please just go and get your kids um, from kids' life and that way they can join us and we can celebrate as a diverse family uh, as we gather around the Lord's Supper. And then lastly, I would just say, um, I just want to reiterate Pathways really briefly. The vision that Lauren, whoever sees Pathways here at New Life and her team, uh, the Demics and others, the vision that they've got for Pathways is that if you're here at New Life Brisbane and you're like, man, how do I get involved? Like, how do I participate in this community? Your next step is Pathways. And so I would just say, if you've not done Pathways, put it on your radar, scan the QR code and sign up at the UCARE form and we'll get your details and we'll plug you in and you'll find a space within which you get to know more about us and we get to know a little bit more about you. But let's jump into the text and to do that, I'd actually just love to pray because I'm blowing the cobwebs out. I haven't been in the saddle for a few weeks and so um, let me pray and then we'll jump into the text. Is that okay? Awesome, great. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here and that amidst the hustle and the bustle of both outside and inside, that God, you long to speak to us today. You long to make yourself known. You long not to just teach us lessons from the Bible, but actually help us experience Jesus alive and risen. So we give you our hearts right now. We give you our attention. We give you our affection. And we give you the next 45 to two hours of our time. In Jesus' name. And everybody said... Hey, can we just give a warm welcome to the Somerville House students? We prayed and they came. Ladies, can we get a little shout out from you? We'd love just, just to hear you say, hey, we'd love to, we'd love to hear your voice. So can you, just, can you just say hi back to us, Somerville House students? Can I get a hey? Awesome. It's so good to have you at New Life Brisbane. Thank you so much for coming. And this is the time when we jump into the text, it's God's Word, and so I'm going to speak for about 30 minutes to an hour, and then we'll finish our time together, and we'll get out of here by 6 p.m. ready for dinner. Does that sound okay, Somerville House girls? Slightly okay, slightly okay, that's fine. I don't think I've seen Albert Street Church this full before, so that's exciting. Um, You're welcome here next week, friends. Um, Anyway, let's just jump straight into it. Hey, um, when I was studying in the UK, I remember reading this, like, journal article by a philosopher, on different types of knowledge. And he made the case that there's two kinds of knowledge that we can have about things and more importantly about people in this world. There's knowledge of, knowledge about, what we might call theoretical knowledge. And then there's knowledge with or experience of, what you might call relational knowledge. And to understand the distinction, I'll just give you a bit of an analogy. Imagine you're a man and someone's setting you up on a blind date. But to sort of get you over the line from, you know, disinterested to, I'm going to go on this blind date, they start telling you facts about this person. And so they're like, hey, you know, she's got blonde hair, she's got blue eyes, she likes listening to punk rock, but sometimes Bon Iver. And she go, like, they go through the list, they set you up on the blind date, and you've got these knowledge, these facts about her. And it's like, oh, cool, that's awesome. I, I know things about them. But let's say you go on this date, and you're sitting over pizza, and you start chatting, and you start sharing life. 
and you experience them. You encounter them. And I just want to say the kind of knowledge that you gain face-to-face with someone in relationship is different from the kind of knowledge you can gain if you're just learning facts about them. And what's the difference? The difference is encounter. The difference is that you spend time with them. The difference is that you jump into a relationship with them. The difference is that you actually share literal physical proximity with them with the result that you don't just know a long list of facts about them so you can tick that off and be, like, feel good about yourself, but you actually know them like intimately. And the kind of thing you walk away from, like the pre-date you know, uh, list of facts thinking, is very different from the kind of thing you walk away from an actual date with a real human. You know this, right? We all know this. There's, there's theoretical knowledge and there's relational knowledge, and the difference is huge. And today we're jumping into a new series where it's called Encountering Jesus. And we want to make the case that there's two ways to know things about God, whether you're a Christian or not. Whatever your story, whatever your background, there's two ways to know things about God, both of which are good, but the latter of which is paramount. And what are they? You can know facts about God, which is helpful and good and right. But unless you encounter Jesus... Unless you step into relationship with the God who's ruling, reigning, and living, then you can have all the facts in the world and it'll make no difference. Unless you spend time with him. And so I just want to start by reading two quotes, both by Christians, but one of which hints at this theoretical knowledge and one of which hints at the more relational knowledge. Philip Schaff, he's a 20th century Swiss-German theologian. He said this. Now, as I read this quote, just think about what he's saying here. He's talking about how great Jesus is in history. Think about this. He said this, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet and without writing a single line. He set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Do you hear that? The person of Jesus, as an idea, catalyzed so much in history. History is not the same because of the person of Jesus. Philosophy is not the same because of the person of Jesus. Morality is not the same because of the person of Jesus. Everything in government to social work to hospitals to hospices, all of it is a result of the life of Jesus. That there's this long list of attributes and facts that are a result of the life and person of Jesus. That's what Philip Schaff is saying. It's profound, the effect that this man has had on history. But then listen to this quote. Anne Voskamp, modern writer, she writes novels but also little devotionals. She wrote this on Twitter recently. And just get the difference in what they're speaking about. She said this, everything boils down to one plan, one word, one commitment, just to keep whispering this over and over again, Jesus. Time with him, keeping company with him, walking with him, resting in him, living in him, growing in him, changing in him, and becoming like him. It's so possible to know a lot about God, 
but not intimately encounter Jesus. And when Anne Voskamp says that the central point of life is to spend time with him, she's getting at it. You can have knowledge about God or you can have a relationship with him. They're complementary, but unless you do both, you'll find yourself wanting in the Christian life. And so we wanna, we wanna, we wanna step across this boundary as a church. You know, we, there's every risk in our lives that particularly as an educated church, we're in the center of the city, many of us have gone to university, it's very easy to walk away from church each week going, I learned a great lesson. I learned some new facts about God, but man, wouldn't it be awesome to actually experience and encounter him? And that's what we wanna do. And we wanna cultivate this expectation as we gather as God's people on a Sunday that as you step into this room and gather alongside God's people, that you can actually encounter the risen Jesus, that you can sit here with him, live with him, be changed by him, and actually walk out different than the way that you came in. And to do that, we're just gonna walk through the Gospels. So each week, someone will get up, and I'll go to a particular passage in the story of the Gospels, and they'll just walk through it line by line. And as we do that, we kinda wanna do some time travel. You know, We wanna step back and put ourselves in the very shoes of those who walked the ancient roads of Israel and met this man. The man about whom people whispered and said, maybe he could be the Messiah. The man because of whom signs and wonders were breaking out and everyone was wondering who exactly he was. The man through whom history changed and the church was birthed. We wanna look at him in the face, traveling back in time, to stand in the shoes of those who actually encountered him. And to do that today, we wanna to look at a guy that we're gonna call the sheepish rabbi, a guy named Nicodemus. We're looking at John 3, Mel read it out before, and when Nicodemus encounters Jesus, Jesus does four things to Nicodemus, four powerful and universal and timeless things that I think he could do to us if we'd let him. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, Alex usually has three points for his sermons. How's he gonna get through all this? Great question. These are the four things that Jesus did to Nicodemus. He commended his curiosity. He critiqued Nicodemus' religiosity. He comforted Nicodemus' anxiety. And he called Nicodemus to himself. Commended his curiosity, number one. Here's the thing about Nicodemus, and you probably picked it up in this passage, is he's got this genuine curiosity about Jesus. Now, I don't know if you felt this in your life. I certainly have. It's why I am the man I am today and I'm the pastor of this church. It's because there was a point in my life where I, I grew to become curious about Jesus and I let that curiosity outwork itself in action and I let that action take me to a local church where the preacher got up and he started talking about this guy and I was forever changed. Have you ever been curious about Jesus? Maybe you're curious about life, about faith, about meaning, and you lay in bed late at night, you're like, why am I here? What's this all for? Is there any purpose to this? That could be a curiosity about Jesus. Maybe you found yourself experiencing things in life and you're like, man, surely this isn't all there is to it. Maybe that's a curiosity about Jesus. And the question I wanna ask as we look at the story of Nicodemus for this first point is, will you let yourself be curious about Jesus? Now, to understand the significance of what takes place as, Jesus, as Nicodemus approaches Jesus, you have to go back in time and understand exactly who Nicodemus was. Nicodemus was what verse one calls a Pharisee. Um, and by virtue of that, he was what you might call a religious fanatic. The Pharisees were people who took the Old Testament law, the 613 commands that we find in the first five books of the Bible. And they were so passionate about God's people keeping these laws that rather than just having that list themselves, they started to add other rules in its place so that might like put a hedge of protection around the rules. So it might be like rule number one might be, hey, keep the Sabbath. But what Pharisees began to do is add rules about how exactly you could keep the Sabbath. 
And so they took the one command from the Decalogue and they added to it a myriad of other commands and they took the 613 commands that we find in the first five books and they multiplied it and they compounded it. Because what was important for the Pharisees was what we might call holiness and ritual purity. They had this belief that if the people of God could just return to the commands of old, just inhabit the holiness that God embodied and just seek the ritual purity that the commands allowed us to experience, then the kingdom would come back, then God would return, and then all would be made new and right. So you've got a religious fanatic. You've also got someone who's a cultural elite. It says in verse one as well that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And so you don't just have a Jew, you don't just have a Pharisee, you've got on top of that what you might call a teacher. In verse 10, Jesus actually calls him rabbi as well, teacher. And so in other words, when you think about who Nicodemus is, you've got a Jew, the people of God, you've got a Pharisee, elite among the Jews, and you've got a teacher who's a Pharisee, elite among the elite among the elite, the best of the best of the best. And so you think, who's the person in the story that's going to ask who the question? And everyone in that culture would have said, surely it's this ragtag preacher from Galilee named Jesus that should be asking Nicodemus the question. Who's the real rabbi? Nicodemus. But what do you have? You've got this ruling elite, culturally high influence kind of person. And it says he came to Jesus. What was he thinking? Scandalous in that culture. Absolutely dumbfounded. And that's why it says in verse two, it says there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Verse two, he came to Jesus at night. Now, I love that John includes this little detail because when you think about it, it makes sense. At night, under the cloak of darkness, within the secrecy of night, Nicodemus, he leaves the temple grounds, he walks away from the council, the table of which he sat at, and he goes to this random place where Jesus is reclining, not not wanting any one of his compatriots or colleagues to know that he's actually going there. Just think about what was stirring in his heart that moved him so much. Think of the risk. Think of the humiliation that would be found out. This random preacher from Galilee, and here's Jesus, here's Nicodemus, sorry, going out of his way to spend time with him face to face. It's actually pretty existential. You think about this for a moment. You grow up in Nicodemus' shoes. You've been trained from birth to memorize the Torah. You know the scriptures like the back of your hand. If anyone wanted a good example of someone who's morally upright, religious and pure, it's you. And then you, you hear this preacher and you hear whispers of him and people are saying he's performing these signs and these wonders. You need to check him out. Just imagine how destabilizing that would be for this man, Nicodemus. This like brittle structure of a house in which he'd built his theological framework and then Jesus turns up, just shattering everything. He's curious. And he goes to meet with Jesus. And this is what I would just say Jesus commends. Because he asks this question, verse 3. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And here's the basic question he asks in these first three verses. Are you from God? Now as we've done that sort of deep dive into the history, do you feel the weight of that question? Like, are you from God? Could you be the one we've longed for? Could you be the Messiah that we've hoped for? Could you be him? 
And Jesus responds with some cryptic stuff, which we get into the next part, but don't miss this. Think about the average Aussie attitude towards Jesus. What would most people say? You know, we moved house recently and like I chat to my neighbor, told him I'm a pastor and the first thing he says is like, oh, I don't normally swear, sorry about that, mate. And he's like, yeah, I reckon Jesus probably was real, but I don't, like he was a good bloke, but I don't buy the fact that he was God, you know? That's sort of the average Aussie experience of Jesus. It's like he was a good bloke, maybe he existed, but I don't think he was anything special. He was definitely not divine. But here you have Nicodemus asking the question, are you from God, and I would just really simply want to say, have you ever asked that question before? I asked that question 10 years ago and it changed my life. And likewise, the invitation from the scriptures is that if we let Jesus answer that question for us, we'll find ourselves following him and have our lives transformed. Is this man from God? I read a story recently um, from the Times in London. Matthew Paris, he's a columnist there. He's really a respected writer. He used to be an MP in British government. And he titles this story, as I read it, he titles it, Jesus Loves Me. This guy's not a Christian. And I just want to read it to us because it's this really beautiful window into how God works. He says this, It was late, nearly midnight, and I was walking the six miles home from a pleasant and lively speaking engagement not 500 yards from the Carlton Club. The journey took me down Fleet Street and straight through the city, streets and lanes, ghostly, almost deserted at that hour. On a corner close to the Bank of England, I paused at a complicated intersection. A cyclist pulled up beside me. He was in his 20s, a bit disheveled and hairy, but harmless looking. He was riding a delivery bike, no doubt with a late delivery. I'd been paid a thousand pounds for attending the dinner. He was perhaps being paid 14 pounds an hour. You're Matthew Paris, he informed me. I confirm this. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? I replied that I'm sure Jesus existed and love and respect the character whose description has come down to us through the ages. But I don't believe he was the son of God. I don't believe in God at all. But he said he was, said the young man. I replied that Jesus was probably under a misapprehension. The cyclist paused to think, well, he said, Jesus loves you, even if you won't acknowledge him. I'll pray for you. And with that, he cycled off. I walked on, curiously moved. Curiously moved. If you're here this afternoon, you've got no background in faith. My question is, as I preach, do you feel curiously moved as you hear about the person of Jesus? Do you feel curiously moved as you hear the story of the gospel? Do you feel curiously moved as you sit alongside people who know, love, and worship him? And I'd say, let that curiosity grab your attention for what Jesus says next. Jesus commends his curiosity. Second thought, though, Jesus confronts and critiques his religiosity. Um, And this comes when we look at the phrase, the kingdom of God. Um, I'll be honest, I'm halfway through preaching right now and uh, just blowing out the cobwebs, you know? So it's just like, got to loosen up a bit. I'm just going to call that as it is. You name it, claim it, there it is, we're good. Um, And so if I loosen up, great. If not, then this will be a very civil experience for you for the next little while. And I'm open to both, but here we go. Um, Kingdom of God. Now, this phrase, kingdom of God, it was like loaded rhetoric in the first century, wild rhetoric. If you heard the phrase kingdom of God, that was what everyone on the street was talking about and everyone in the temple was talking about because the kingdom of God was a catch-all term for what God was going to do that everyone hoped for. What is the kingdom of God? Really, long story short, it's the rule and reign of God where the shalom and the peace and the flourishing of everything is reinstated as it was originally intended to be. 
Harmony between us and our Father in heaven. Harmony between us and our brothers and sisters alongside of us. Harmony between us and ourselves inwardly. And harmony between us and creation. Beautiful vision. The reason government exists is to try and get us there, though it never will. The reason that social welfare nets exist is because they're trying to mimic what the kingdom of God ultimately hopes for. The reason that we desire justice and mercy and beauty and goodness is because it all points to the kingdom of God, which is the ache of every single human heart. But the question in the first century was, how's it going to get here? How's it going to come? And there were three parties in the first century that debated this. There were the zealots. The zealots thought that the kingdom of God was going to come because the people of God violently overthrew the Romans. They said, we get through to the kingdom of God through military might. We overthrow the people by whom we're oppressed. Might makes right. This was the zealots' view. Then there was the Sadducees' view. They weren't like, let's fight and make right. They were like, let's capitulate to culture and just try and make a quick buck on the way. What did that look like? It looked like just saying, look, hey, the Romans are here. They're not going anywhere. We're always going to be oppressed. So let's just sack up, put our heads in the sand and just try and get to the end of our lives. That was their view. It doesn't matter if God wants his kingdom to come back. We're just chilling for a bit, right? That was their view, the Sadducees. Then you've got the Pharisees the religious fanatics. And what they did is they thought that God's kingdom would be restored if his people would truly seek his face. But not in sort of a nice sort of broad way, but specifically by taking the commands that were relevant only to the priesthood and pushing them out to the general people of God. And so this is why the Pharisees were critiqued by first century witnesses of putting a yoke of slavery on the people of God. Why? Because they took the commands that were only for the priests in the temple and they started to push them out to the general population. So imagine this. Imagine you've got like a monk in a monastery here in Brisbane in the 21st century and the rules they abide by to experience God in their calling is what you now have to walk out just to experience God in your calling. You might be a full-time mum. You might be a full-time lawyer, whatever your story. So they added additional things with the hope that that would be the means by which God's kingdom was to come back. And then Jesus has these words. Verse three. He says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, you've actually got it all wrong, Nicodemus. You've had a false start. You've got it upside down. I will not bring my kingdom to bear upon this world by human effort alone. I will not bring my kingdom to bear upon this world because you're so religious, you're so morally superior, you're so spiritual. I won't bring my kingdom to bear upon this world because you've just done the right things. He's saying, you need to be born again. This isn't just about renovating the people of God's life. This is about regenerating every single individual from the ground up. You need new life. You need new birth. You need, in the words of Jesus, to be born again, or another translation would be born from above. Jesus says later in verse 7, he says, you shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. But I actually reckon Nicodemus was surprised, right? Because think about this for a moment. If anyone thought of themselves as qualified to be the people through whom God was to bring his kingdom, who do you think it was? Nicodemus. He was holy. He pursued purity. He was part of the Jewish people. He was a Pharisee. And better yet, he was a teacher among the Pharisees. Through whom did he expect God to bring the kingdom? Himself. His ragtag bunch of Pharisees. 
That's what he expected. And Jesus says, no, it's not coming through you. You need to be born again. You've got this all upside down. I think we learned something about this. We learned that Jesus wants to confront all of our religiosity. See, all of us think that, you know, just to experience being fixed in this life or experience spiritual awakening or experience the kingdom of God, we just need to fix ourselves up a little bit. We just need to take ourselves forward by our own sort of moral effort. We just need to do what we want to do. And Jesus just cuts to the core with how we think about this. Regardless of whether we are Christians or not, we genuinely think that we can kind of fix ourselves in this life. That whether through our systems or our religions or our experiences, we can sort of upgrade ourselves to fix ourselves. And I think we see this in self-help culture. I don't know if you've experienced this, but um, we live in a self-help culture. We live in a culture which says that all you need to do, you know, most of us are living the kind of life which is three quarters of the way there to greatness, but we just need to add like one or two things and then we're, then we're good, right? Um, we experience this in fitness. Um, when I was living in Sydney, we, um, we used to do this boot camp, obviously. And one of the things that would happen is like you feel really good about yourself when you wake up at the crack of dawn, you go down to the beach and realize you're living a highly privileged life because the beach is five minutes away. And then, but you work out and your muscles get sore and it's like, oh, I'm really crushing it. I'm winning at life. Me, me and life, we got this. Like, it's, it's sweet. It's a good deal. Um, I actually learned recently that I think it was, um, it was this, it, it wasn't Fitbit. It was a different watch brand, but they did a study in 2014 where they tried to understand what city in the world wakes up the earliest and goes to bed the earliest. Guess who it was? Brisbane. It was Brisbane. And so, like, and how do you know this to be the case? All you have to do is go down to Newstead or Tenerife at 6 a.m. in the morning, yoga pants, people with way bigger biceps than me, and they're just doing their thing and they're winning at life. It's a fitness culture. It's a self-help culture. If we just, if all, all we need to do to feel good about ourselves is wake up early, hit the gym, and have this really good exercise routine, then we'll feel like we're making it in life. It doesn't just happen in fitness culture with our bodies. It happens with food as well. Um... One thing I've really appreciated over the last few years is seeing how like different food trends have rocked like the, um, the self-help market. So does anyone rem- remember, remember when it was um, spinach? Like spinach was a thing. People would put it in, yeah, a couple of people, one or two people, awesome. And then some people in the room are like, it's in my smoothie every morning. And I, I don't want a green smoothie, but that's fine. So it was spinach. But then, I, tell me if you remember this one, cacao nibs. Who remembers eating cacao nibs? That was a thing. I reckon six years ago, after cacao nibs, this one's going to rock your world. This is a bit of nostalgia. Chia seeds. Remember putting chia seeds on stuff? Yeah, on your wheat bix. Goodness me. Ten wheat bix and chia seeds. Yeah, winning. And then it turned into kale. I looked up, actually, in Australia, did you know that the multivitamin industry is $5.6 billion in worth, like in a year. That was 2021. $5.69 billion. And it's even debated as to whether multivitamins work, right? <laughs> happens with our bodies, happens with fitness. It happens with mental, mental health. All of us have those friends on Facebook who post every once in a while. They're like, I'm done with toxic relationships. <laughs> Out of it. Let's get these done. I don't want anyone to influence me for evil. I'm done with toxic relationships. We've all got that friend on Facebook. If you don't have one, it could be you. Just putting it out there. <laughs> or you go to Dimmicks and it's like, oh, there's a gratitude journal. It's like, man, Paul had that sorted 2,000 years ago. But gratitude journal might help you out. might be really good. Or someone might say, hey, don't have a stagnant or a stasis mindset. 
have a growth mindset. Anyone, anyone heard that one? Growth mindsets, they really will help us. It'll help us fix ourselves, really helpful. It doesn't just happen with mental health or food or fitness. It happens in the spiritual world. Um, when I was living in the UK, which you know three times by now, <laughs> I was like, man, I've got to work off this little UK belly. It's going really well, by the way. Got to work it off. And so I downloaded Chris Hemsworth, the center app. Later when we do communion, I'll announce the forgiveness of God and I'll be absolved of my sins. But like, I downloaded this app and what struck me about the Center app from Chris Hemsworth didn't just give you exercises, didn't just give you recipes, it actually had like a meditation function. And I remember thinking, whoa, that wouldn't, have, that wouldn't fly 10 years ago. There's this hunger like, to upgrade ourselves, to renovate ourselves, to add to ourselves, to fix ourselves. And it marks all of us, every individual across every single culture, fitness with our bodies, fitness with our food, mental health, and our spirituality. We just have this belief that we can fix ourselves. And here's what Jesus is saying. You can't. Like, you can't. Like the problem's much deeper than that. Now there's good news coming, but like hear the sting. You've got Nicodemus, this elite, crushing it in the religious world. And this ragtag disciple, this preacher from Galilee says, you've got it all wrong. You have to be born again. Everyone needs to be born again. Think of the sting, the critique, the challenge, the confrontation. Nicodemus experienced it. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you would have experienced it too. Because Jesus says to every single one of us, we need to be born again. But good news, Jesus doesn't just critique his religiosity. He confronts his anxiety. Because what's the next question? Well, how? Like, how can I be born again? How can I experience the life of the kingdom of the heavens? How can I experience the shalom of relationship with God? How can I be brought back into that reconciled, intimate connection that humanity had in the garden and that God longs for each of us to experience? That's Nicodemus' question, and he articulates it so. Verse 9, he says this, How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Jesus gets a bit cryptic here, I know, follow with me. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let me read that last one again, and I would love to hear some cheers, because it's great news. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Isn't that good news? Come on. And so you hear this, and you hear Jesus talking, and it gets a bit cryptic, but it's not cryptic to Nicodemus, because Jesus makes a reference in this phrase. Jesus says, remember the Israelite people of old in the book of Numbers. I was reading it this week with Kath. 
They, got, they rebelled from God, and because of which God sent a plague of snakes among their midst. And in their midst, the snakes would bite the individuals, and they therefore, because of the snake venom, be oriented towards death. In other words, they got a snake bite. And Jesus is like, do you remember this story, Nicodemus? It's in your scriptures. Do you remember it? Nicodemus is like, heck yeah, I remember that story. Snakes, really random. They came and they bit my people. They bite the people because of the venom that is in the veins of God's people in that story. They're now oriented towards death. And that's the point Jesus gets him to in this cryptic story. They're now oriented towards death. But in that midst, God gave the Israelite people a solution. He said to Moses, take a bronze snake, put it on a pole. Take that pole, uphold it before the people. And in a way that seems really unconnected to me because I don't understand like ancient Jewish ritual. Just gonna put that out there, right? He says, if you hold up the snake on the pole and people look at it, they'll be healed. In other words, think about this, right? Think of the imagery. If you take the thing because of which God's people are oriented towards death, put it on a pole and they just look at it, they'll be oriented towards life. The thing which plagues God's people because of which they will die I want you to hold up on a pole such that if they look to it, they'll be given life. And what's Jesus doing here? Well, he's actually just giving us a window into what's gonna happen at the end of the gospel story, which is simply this, that he himself will be hung on a pole. Really beautiful imagery. Hung on a pole and experience death there in our place so that whoever would look at him wouldn't perish but have eternal life wouldn't be oriented towards death, but be given new life. But think about the imagery. See, what is it that orients us towards death? It's sin. It's the human sin problem. It's our need to be remade. The fact that we've rebelled from God, run away from him, lived our own way. And it says that in, Paul says this in Romans, that he took on that sin. So the very thing which cancels us away from God, he himself put on himself while he hung on the pole so that if we looked at him on that cross, we'd be freed and have new life. It's the center of the gospel. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's because of which we can walk free from our sin and into the new life that he has for us. In other words, just think about the imagery here. He's saying to Nicodemus, every single person, regardless of their background, are equally lost and in need of God's redemption. But every single person, because of God's love, is equally loved and rescued by God. And this is what the cross of Jesus does. It doesn't just confront our religiosity. It comforts our anxiety. It critiques the religious. And it consoles those who are scared. It humbles the proud. And it exalts the lowly. Because it says none of us can fix ourselves, but all of us are invited to look to Jesus. That's the hope of the Christian story. That's the invitation of the message of the gospel. And in looking to Jesus in this mysteriously beautiful way, because of that, the Spirit of God pours out on us and gives us new life. It was um, the 24th of May in 1738, and um, there was a preacher in London. And this guy, his name was John Wesley, because of which this building exists, fun fact, but that's like a long story. And this guy, he would call himself a Christian. In fact, he was a preacher. He was a priest in the Church of England for years. He traveled. He like, went to Georgia. I read his biography recently. He went to Georgia, had a preaching campaign there. It didn't go very well. And because of that, he was actually really disheartened. 
So he came back to England, his hometown, his home, home like country, and he felt disheartened and he was like, man, you know, am I really a child of God? Am I, am I, am I really um, born again? This is his big question. Now, he's, again, he's a priest. It's like, you kind of got to be, bro. <laughs> like, how are you going to do your job? But this is his question. And so disheartened and cold and tired, he stumbles in um, into a meeting of what they call the Moravians, this like German spiritual charismatic group that moved over to England. And they were there preaching the Christian story and the gospel. And as they were preaching, he'd heard this story a thousand times before. He'd preached it literally every single day on his preaching campaigns just the story of God's love. In fact, at the time, uh, they were reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. So it's like on a scale of one to boring, it's probably a nine, you know? It's like a preface to a commentary on the Bible. It's like, oh, it's dense. But as he listened to this, sense in, to this story that God's righteous and holy, but a father and loving, and he's done everything necessary that we might be welcomed back into relationship with him, he goes away from this encounter and writes in his journal, And he said, that night, my heart was strangely warmed. And that was the night where I felt the assurance that I have, that I am God's and he is mine. And his brother Charles, who basically bankrolled, not bankrolled, sorry, um, him rolled the um, movement of the Wesleyans. I think he captures it in one of my favorite hymns that he wrote. He said it like this, describing the experience of actually coming into relationship with God, having an encounter with Jesus. He said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains flew off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But your eye, Lord Jesus, it diffused. It pinned on me this quickening ray, and I woke the dungeon. It flamed with light. And because of all that, The chains flew off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. Beautiful imagery of what it means to be one in an encounter with Jesus, to come into relationship with him. And here's the question I've got for us this afternoon. If Jesus was to commend your curiosity as you came close to him, confront your religiosity so you don't trust in yourself anymore but you look for something else, and then comfort you with his grace, would you come to him? Would you let that be the thing that draws you to him? Because that's what he's done it for. That's the whole purpose of this story, that he offers us a new heart and a fresh start, that all the works we've trusted ourselves with, they're worth nothing. They can actually be a distraction. But if we were to so humble ourselves and come into the relationship with the God who made us for himself, man, that would feel like having the chains broken off you, having your heart be made free and walking forth and following Jesus. The last thing, he calls us where we're at. And as I jump into this point, I'd just love to invite the band up behind me. I don't know how you came in this afternoon and, and what your own, if you were to take an audit of your relationship with God, what would you say? Some of you might say, I'm a flourishing disciple of Jesus, and it's ace. Others of you might say, I don't even know the guy. And I think he, maybe he was real. You know, you're all at different places in the journey. And something I've learned from the story of Nicodemus is that he calls us where we're at but he calls us on. What do I mean? Well, the beauty of Nicodemus in the Gospel of John is that we don't just hear about him in John chapter three. We hear about him two other times throughout the Gospel. 
Uh, we hear about it in John chapter 7, where he's in this debate with the Jewish elite around whether they should arrest Jesus. And Nicodemus is like, no, nah, let's hear Jesus out. So he comes to the defense of Jesus, which is interesting. Big risk in doing that. But then later, in John chapter 19, verses 38 and 39, Jesus has just died and his body has started to decay on the cross. And because it's the day of preparation, two people come and ask the Roman elite, hey, can we take the body down and bury it? We wanna give him a good burial. We wanna make sure that his body isn't eaten by crows or robbed by stealers. And so they grab the body. And in grabbing the body, they bring a bunch of spices. It says around, I think, I don't know, 34 kilos, I translated it. Um, it uses pounds, I don't use pounds in the Bible, so anyway. And 34 kilos of spices, aloe and myrrh, is actually the amount of spice they would use, historians believe, to bury someone you think is a royal, a king. Now you think we started this whole journey by asking, how's the kingdom of God coming? And Nicodemus, this Pharisee teacher, ruling cultural elite, that's his question. Do you know who the two people are that come in John 19 to wrap the body? And in doing so, suggesting that they're wrapping their own king. Verses 38 and 39 say this. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea came, asked them if they could grab the body. And then 38, later, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. But with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Verse 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, or in Aussie lingo, 34 kilos. So you've got a man who comes to Jesus in secret at the beginning of John's gospel and says, are you from God? And how's the kingdom of God coming back? And that same man comes to wrap the body of Jesus as if he was a king. God takes us all on a journey. And who knows the fate of Nicodemus, but that makes me hopeful. It makes me hopeful that he saw something in Jesus, the result of which was a living relationship with the ruling and reigning king. And the invitation of the Christian story is that that's just available for each and every single one of us. I don't know what you came in this afternoon thinking about God and Jesus. I don't know your heart, I don't know your experience. I don't know whether you're like Matthew Paris, who found himself curiously warmed when he heard the name of Jesus, but wouldn't call himself a Christian. Or you're like John Wesley, who walked into a random church setting and you walk away now thinking, man, my heart's strangely warmed. Whatever it is, the invitation is that you can be born again that you can have the Spirit of God flow into your life, create new life, bring you into a relationship with God. And it's really simple. All you do is just invite God into your life. It's not through your moral uprightness, not through coming to church every single Sunday and being religiously superior. It's just by saying, God, I need to be born again. I need you. I need your Spirit in my life. And so I want to make that available to each and every single one of us. Can I invite us to stand just as we jump into worship? And just with everyone's eyes closed, just because I'd love to make this a moment that you get. In the same way that Nicodemus got to go in the secrecy of night, I'd actually just invite each of us to close our eyes and just to make this a moment where we are invited to encounter God as individuals and personally and intimately. And so why don't you close your eyes? And I just want to speak to those of you in the room, just, just one person in the room, one profile of person in the room, and you're here and you're like, 
think I need to be born again. I think I need to come into a relationship with Jesus. I think I, I want this. And if that's you, I just want to say, would you pray this prayer with me? The prayer is really simple. It's God, thank you for coming to rescue me in Jesus. Sorry that I've lived my life distant from you. Please birth in me a new life and help me follow you. And so with every eye closed, why don't we just pray that now? If that's you, just in the quiet of your own heart, repeat after me. God, thank you for coming to rescue me in Jesus. Thank you that you loved us and you love me. Sorry, God, for rebelling from you and living life distant from you. Please come into my life. Rescue me and help me follow you. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray.